Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to New Books in Economics. Today I am joined by the authors of a great new book, and the title is A New History of Management, published by Cambridge Cambridge University Press. I'm here with two of the four authors, and it is Professor Stephen Cummings and Todd Brickman uh, that are joining me from Australia. Um, the other authors are not with us, and this is Professor John Hassard from Manchester um, University and Mick Rawlinson from Exeter University in the UK. Uh, maybe I would now ask uh, Stephen and Todd to introduce themselves. Sure. Thank you, Andrea. Um, my name is Stephen Cummings, and I'm Professor of Management at Victoria University in Wellington. And I'm Todd Bridgman, Associate Professor in the School of Management at Victoria and Wellington, uh, New Zealand also. Thank you very much for, for joining me for this podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts is um, brought to, to the channel of new books by EIEP, which is a, a European Association of Economists, the second largest, in particular, it is the largest among um, heterodox economists. And this book is about heterodoxy, but about heterodoxy in management, or at least about telling the history of management studies from a different point of view. Uh, and in the preface of the book, there is an important clarification, which is about the title. The title, A New History of Management, rather than History of Management. And you argue that this shouldn't be considered uh, something that aims to become a new orthodoxy in uh, management studies, but rather just one of the several possible histories. But the book is about uh, I don't know if we can call them wrong histories or inaccurate histories. But anyway, histories that do not represent the very precise development of management history, uh, sorry, of management studies. Uh, let's let's start with the, the origin of this book and what brought you together and what is behind uh, the origin of this book. Okay, thanks, uh, Andrea. I, I think it, it, just to just to comment on your introduction there, I think perhaps the best way of, of looking at it is that we're what we're doing in the book is we're critiquing what has become a very narrow history of management, where we focus on uh, certain things which are very, very, very narrow interpretation of the, 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 the myriad of things that could be incorporated into the history of, uh, of management. So I think that's the way that we tried to conceptualize it, not that it's a new comprehensive history of management or a new more truthful history of management, but this is a history that seeks to be uh, critical of the accepted history, that, uh, that there's this very narrow history and we want to open things up and we present a different story, which as you say, um, is one of potentially many stories that we could uh, reflect on when we think of where the field of management studies comes from. Um, but coming back to your, your question, um, this, this book has been a long time in the making. Uh, and I think you know the four authors, myself and, and Todd and, and John, 
and, uh, and Michael um, <clears throat> have all been interested in management history for a long time. And we've all in our own ways been a little bit disappointed with management history and that it has been so narrow and so limited, uh, you know, focused on economics and efficiency and uh, planning and directing and organizing and controlling and to the expense of, of focusing perhaps on, on more human or more behaviorist uh, or more psychological uh, aspects of management. And so each in our own way, I think all four of us have, have written in the past about the limits of that history. Um, and I think through various conversations uh, between the four of us, we started to think about how we could put all of our, I suppose, ideas and, um, and, and backgrounds together to make a more comprehensive argument um, against some of the things that we assume to be truthful about the history of management. So perhaps, I don't know, thinking back, Probably it's been 20 years that, that we've all been thinking about these ideas, but really only in the last four or five years did we think about working together to have a really um, good attempt to try and take down um, many of the assumptions that, that people make and assume about uh, where management comes from. Very interesting, very interesting. I, I wonder if, uh, by the way, the fact that uh, we just uh, we are just out of the financial crisis that started in 2007, 2008, uh, maybe was also one additional reason for you to write this book or not necessarily. Well, I think if you use the case of economics, certainly, you know, from my reading of it, the financial crisis um, provide an opportunity for heterodox economics to have its voice taken more seriously. And yeah, I think we're at a particular time in the uh, development of capitalism where there are some deep questions that um, that are being asked and, and that really involves a questioning of the foundations um, of the field, which for us is, is, uh, is this history of management. And I think what we've found in each of the examples uh, that we have studied is that um, there's kind of a consistency between the way that the history of management is traditionally presented and um, an ideological commitment to free market capitalism. And so I think both, both are up, up for questioning at this, at this stage. Very good. Uh, while the critiques to capitalism usually is about policies and uh, political institutions and financial institutions. This book is very much about academics. For example, a key, a key message is that you are concerned with textbooks and there is something to, to look carefully at how textbooks are published and what use of textbooks is made in universities. And you define textbooks as ideological artifacts that define the boundaries of, of a discipline, and in this case, the boundaries of, of management studies. So what textbooks are we using for our students and pro probably actually also for our managers that comes to our business school for executive education and what's wrong with them? I, mean, it's, I think it's a really good question and we, um, when we started to discuss how we could create this book, of course we needed to, to, to have some, some measure of, of the orthodoxy, if you like, and for us, looking at textbooks was a really good way to gain a window or an insight into what some of the basic fundamental assumptions uh, are that are being communicated to, to students or new, initi new, new initiates 
um, in management and economics. And um, so I think textbooks give us a really interesting window into what the baseline is that people then build upon or build their knowledge upon. And I think, you know, one of the things that we found with, with uh, looking at textbooks, for example, is that, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned uh, maybe, maybe when we, we, we began discussing, maybe before we started recording, uh, Adam Smith uh, as, as one of the, um, the characters in the history of management and economics that we've, we've taken a critical look at. Not so much that we're critical of Smith, but we're critical of the way that he has been interpreted. And if you look at textbooks and in management and um, economic history, you get a view of Adam Smith, which is very much focused on a few fragments which appear in the wealth of nations. Uh, you know, the, the invisible hand, the, the example of the division of labor, these kind of things. These things are seen as baselines for what is important um, in, uh, in, in creating the field of management or creating the, the, the field of modern uh, economics, the, um, the orthodox view, if, if you like. Now, we know, and, and people have been writing for many years, that Adam Smith wrote a lot more than this. And, and particularly, what we should probably do is look at the, the, um, the theory of moral sentiments first, because this is, the, this is the ethical framework within which the wealth of nations provides an example as, as to why people uh, trust each other enough to truck and barter. But the first point of contact we have with our students is often in introductory courses where we use textbooks which give them a different message that actually say, you know, management economics is built on Adam Smith's theory of the division of labor uh, leading to progress or increase in civilization. And what we don't teach our students is the ethical foundation, which is laid out in Smith's earlier work, uh, within which that, uh, that truck and barter or that, that those, those market economies uh, need to be managed or, or controlled. So I think textbooks give us a real insight into the kind of things that we introduce our students to. And I think one of the arguments we make in the book is that if we really want to, to change, and at the end of the day, you know, this is a history book, but it's also a book that encourages innovation. You know, if we really want people to think in different ways, we have to start at the beginning. You know, what are the first things that we tell our students? And if the first things that we tell our students are that management is about the division of labor, it, it's about increasing efficiency, um, then we're, we're going to, to sort of start with a very limited palette. Whereas, you know, as we argue, if we were to start by teaching our students ethics and some of the ideas that uh, Adam Smith, the moral philosopher, um, advanced, I think that would give us a much richer or broader palette with which our students could then go on and build their understanding of the subject. I remember personally as a student, uh, um, on my textbook there was something about Chester Barnard and I wanted to, to read more and I took uh, his book, he didn't write many books so it was easy in that occasion to, to understand the real Chester Barnard and I realized in, the, in that occasion that what the Italian, in this case, textbook on uh, of organization studies was saying about Chester Butner was completely inaccurate. So this point for me is very crucial, it's very, very, very important. Uh, but I would like now to to go back to your definition of textbook that you, you describe as ideological artifact. And uh, at the same time, you describe how they are sold as scientific products, as a product of truth and science. Um, 
so my question is, is it just inaccuracy? Is it just that we are lazy and we talk about Chester Barnard or I don't know, Ofsted or uh, Adam Smith without actually going back to the to the real work and to the real classics? Or is there a mastermind that is behind this inaccuracy? I mean, your book could be somehow even a conspiracy theory book, but, but this is just a, a way to it's not an accurate uh, way to, to describe your work, but uh, my my provocation is uh, about whether there is a mastermind in this inaccuracy of uh, management textbook, or it is just uh, the result of other other reasons. Well, I think both of those would be the case uh, from the research that I've done or we've done. I mean, there is a necessary simplification, isn't there, when you're distilling the thoughts of hundreds of foundational thinkers into a textbook, there is always the risk that you are going to um, oversimplify and misrepresent what what any of those people have to say. So that's a hazard of all textbook production. But I think there is, whether you want to call it a conspiracy, whatever, certainly um, political interests that are served by textbooks being presented in the way they are, um, some voices being included and represented in a particular way and other voices being excluded. Um, so one, one example that we're working on at the moment that isn't actually in the book, looks at the uh, very famous experiments of Stanley Milgram um, to study the destructive effects of um, obedience to authority. Now, what's interesting, you mentioned that textbooks tend to present themselves as incorporating you know, classic scientific research. And we've done a comparative study um, looking at the way that Milgram's experiments are represented in introductory psychology textbooks versus introductory organization behavior textbooks. And what we find um, is that even when those textbooks are written by the same person in the field of social psychology and in organization behavior, um, the Milgram experiments are covered extensively in social psychology and given very favorable coverage and students are are taught how important it is to understand the destructive effects of obedience to authority. And yet there is a virtual absence of the Milgram experiments in organization behavior textbooks, um, even when those books are written by the same person who wrote the social psychology book textbook. So that suggests to us that there's, there's something else going on. Why is it um, that we don't see uh, teaching about the dangers of obedience and conformity as being relevant to the study of organization behavior, whereas we see it being very relevant to the study of psychology. There has to be some other explanations. Yeah, and if I can just um, add to Todd's uh, comment there, um, you know, I think, as, as he said, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. The idea that um, that, that there are there is a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy happening, and the idea that these uh, that these these artifacts, these textbooks, are, are not truthful. Um, you know, certain things do have to be left out. I mean, there's not enough hours in the day to teach everybody everything that could be incorporated into the history of management. But there certainly is some some selection um, that is that is going on by people who create and, and, and sell textbooks and sell the, the field of management or, or organizational behavior. So one of the things that we, we do touch on in the book, um, another absence, if you like, a little bit like Milgram's experiments being absented from the history of management over time, 
is any discussion of slavery. Um, slavery just seems to be not a topic that people want to to broach in management textbooks. Again, coming back to Adam Smith, one of the things that was quite unique about Smith and his day was his strong um, arguments against slavery. And you would think that if we did want to to include Adam Smith as a founding father, that these would be <clears throat> you know good arguments to to talk about that actually you know we should really see management as what needs to occur um, in the absence of, of slavery or uh, where we don't accept that people should be coerced into uh, in, into obeying or, or, or being obedient. But what seems to happen in management textbooks, to a lesser extent in economics textbooks, is you know slavery, it's, it's too difficult a subject to broach. I mean, the reality is that many of the the approaches that developed, um, you know, in the United States and, and in, um, in Europe and other developing countries, uh, you know, 120, 130 years ago, that's sort of the foundations of management studies. A lot of that was based on on things that were were, were used in in managing slaves, and that's a really you know inconvenient or inconvenient um, truth. So our view is that it would be much better for us to to look at these things. We can't include everything in the history of management, but why don't we deal with some of the, the difficult and uh, troubling uh, aspects of our history? Because if, if, if we do that, we believe that we can have a more honest uh, discussion and that this discussion can lead our students to think more critically and uh, to come up with, with new ways of, of, of thinking about things and new ways of managing. Today, when I was uh, uh, going through your book, uh, um, this let me remind uh, a famous paper by Pfeffer, published uh, in 1993 on the Academy of Management Review. And Pfeffer, in this provocative paper, argued that uh, somehow organization studies needed uh, to uh, agree on a dominant paradigm. So he said, more or less, uh, we need a mainstream in organization studies. There is too much uh, uh, school, sub-schools, and we need to give a small elite the power to force a consensus by excluding uh, other views which are going into many directions, more or less, to simplify the message. Uh, so I wonder if uh, this could could be a way to see the inaccuracies that you have observed, or what what is the answer of your book to to that provocative uh, um, argument? Well, I would say there there is already a lot of consensus. If you look at the best-selling management textbooks. Um, there's actually a lot of similarity between them in terms of the people and the events they choose to cover and how they cover them. And, you know, I think we're saying that that is very problematic, that students of management and business in general have been led to believe that they are getting an obje objective scientific uh, truth about the foundations of our field, whereas I think what they've been getting is is a very one-sided um, I think you would use the word mainstream or dominant view um, and have not being been um, introduced to the to the diversity of of thought that is possible in thinking about how we should manage um, organizations. And so um, what we're trying to do, as Steve mentioned, is is open things up rather than close them down as Pfeffer is and to say, uh, you know, we can, if we want to be creative and innovative, we need um, we need new ideas. And one of the ways that we can generate new ideas is to look back at the past 
Um, but in a way, we are limited when we view the past by the histories that we have. Um, so what we're hoping to do is inspire the, uh, the production of new histories that enables us to think differently about the past um, and therefore potentially differently about the present and the future. Mm. And it's an interesting thing that you mentioned, um, you know, the article by, by Pfeffer, uh, Andrea, um, you're thinking about that, that's 25 years ago that he wrote that article, and I'm not sure that he would agree with it now. You know, Jeffrey has written a recent piece where he's arguing uh, almost the opposite of this, of, of, of actually encouraging people to question the orthodoxy of the way that we've done things in management. I think 25 years ago, there was still in management science, to a lesser extent in economics, um, management studies, I should say, um, there was this science envy that people thought that to advance the field of management, we needed to be more like a science and, and agree on some, some paradigm or some orthodoxy to move things forward. You know, in 2018, I think people are more aware that the cost of that orthodoxy is incremental development. Uh, we know more about creativity, we know more about innovation, and the, the more we know, the more we realize that those things come from diversity, from different opinions, uh, debating things and looking for new ways of doing things. Everybody agreeing on a paradigm means that to some extent we're stuck within that paradigm. And so I think I would, I would, I can't speak for him, but I would imagine that Jeffrey Pfeffer's thinking has, has changed somewhat. Um, and I think this is another reason why we think the timing for the book, uh, the new history of management book, is, is good uh, now. One, you know, you mentioned the global financial crisis, which has meant that people are questioning uh, some orthodox ideas about management and, and economics. But I think a second uh, thing that makes this book pertinent now is that people recognize that diversity is not just a nice thing or a good thing to do. It's a, it's a productive thing if we're interested in innovation, because with that diversity, whether it's diversity of cultures or diversity of history, that encourages you know, interplay and debate, which, which, which will uh, lead us to, to look at, at new ways of doing things. And there's a theory of, of innovation that runs right through our book, which is this, that we actually believe that there should be more diversity, which is a very different position from what Pfeffer was outlining 25 years ago. Great answer, perfectly, and probably yes, you would also agree. In terms of uh, uh, risk of thinking everybody like, uh, maybe I would like to mention the the first figure in your in your book, which is on page three, first chapter, and this is a map of the world where you put in relative terms the dimension of different continents and countries in terms of their contribution to to, let's say, the development of management studies. Can you tell us about that map and the rest of that chapter, which is a history of concentration of power somehow? Yeah, so what we, the data that we used to generate that map was to look at uh, management and business history journals and look at, uh, back through their archives and the place that they were studying, the context they were studying in those articles. And what we see in the map is a massive overrepresentation of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Western Europe to a lesser extent, and also the United States. So those those appear as, as incredibly large and overrepresented, and pretty much everywhere else in the world, uh, massively underrepresented. And this was a comparative study where we compared uh, management and business history to 
um, architecture and also to medicine. And we looked at where their histories came from. And what we found was that their histories were considerably more diverse in terms of place um, than we, what we have in management. And we're kind of theorizing that this might explain um, this recurring debate in management about a dearth or lack of genuinely new ideas. Uh, we also coded for time. And what we found there is that management history is, is very narrowly focused around uh, what was happening 100 years ago in the United States, particularly around um, the birth of scientific management and then following from that, the human relations movement. Um, so we're arguing the need for, for greater diversity in terms of place, the various contexts that we, we look at in order to, to generate new ideas and also um, in different times. Now, one thing we haven't included in the book, uh, which, which is important also, is, is to look at different people within those places. So uh, we have some colleagues working in management history in the United States um, who are looking at the contribution of Afri African-Americans in the United States to um, that nation's management history. So that's an important dimension also um, that we haven't got in the book but would like to see um, encouraged. There is a chapter of your book which is about uh, one specific institution, this is uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, so we move from the dimension of uh, individual scholars to an institution. Uh, do you want to, to tell our listeners about that chapter? Yeah, sure. We, I mean, Harvard Business School is, is a preoccupation for many, uh, not just history scholars and management, but you know, many people in business schools look to Harvard Business School. As, as having led the way. And so uh, what we did there was to go back into the archive of Harvard Business School and really look for, look for aspects of the past that are not represented um, in either Harvard Business School's history or what others have written about Harvard Business School. And we found a very interesting set of events um, around what was happening a hundred years ago um, in the early 1920s leading up to the Great Depression. Um, we see some parallels between those events of a hundred years ago and the financial crisis that we've been through. And so we were very interested to look at the response of Harvard Business School back then to those events. And what we found, and this kind of connects to your opening remark, I think, is that there was a very deep questioning of capitalism led by um, the then Dean of Harvard Business School. And he saw then, as capitalism was, was in crisis, the limits of a very narrow conception about what a business school education should be and believed a much broader questioning was necessarily, was necessary given, given the context. And we think, you know, there are real lessons to be learned from that for for thinking about what a business education should be today. But the problem is, and coming back to my earlier point about um, the limitation of the histories that we have, that deep questioning of capitalism is not talked about in the histories of Harvard Business School. It's almost like that has been conveniently forgotten. And so part of that chapter is to recover that forgotten past and to, to try and argue for its relevance for us today. Mm. I think, and that's a consistent theme through the book, and, and a lot of the, the raw material from, from the book 
um, necessitated uh, us going to archives, whether it was Harvard Business School or um, the Stevens Institute in New Jersey, where all of Frederick Taylor's papers are, or Brandeis University in Boston, um, where, where some key characters uh, leave or have left their correspondence. Actually, going back and looking, you know, in the example that Todd mentioned about Harvard Business School, if you look at the correspondence between um, uh, Donham, who was the, the dean there, and Alfred North Whitehead, a famous British philosopher who went over and spent time in Harvard, you know, it's fascinating that, that these two characters and some of the other people in their network were really seriously questioning what a business school should be. But those letters have, have been forgotten, and, and as as management and economics has moved on, it, it, we've, we've sort of forgotten these artifacts, we've forgotten the correspondence, we've forgotten that perhaps, you know, a hundred years ago, people were thinking really deeply about what it is that we should be doing, how we should be educating uh, managers and, and economists to think. And so part of what we're doing is trying to recover this past and, and to show to people that, look, it's a lot more diverse than you imagine. While it might be more efficient and while it might be more convenient for us to think that Harvard is the model and that their way of teaching is the way that business school should teach, um, you know, maybe it's more efficient, more convenient, as I say, but there's a lack of diversity there, which means that we don't question things, we don't look for different ways, we don't, uh, we don't really fully explore what some of the alternatives um, could be. And that's something that runs through uh, the book when we look at you know many of the other characters that we focus on sometimes partly because of convenience maybe because as you were talking um, to about uh, about maybe a conspiracy theory or um, trying to just uh, edit things to fit into the space you know maybe we, we, we leave certain things out thinking we might come back to them but what tends to happen is we leave things out and then we forget about them so we conceptualize Adam Smith in a certain way to the extent that it makes it very difficult for us to go back and change that view of Adam Smith because it's so ingrained. And for the last 50 or 60 years, um, you know, we've, we've, we've really, only in, in business schools, when we look at Smith at all, we only look at nations. So to try and re-educate and to look back is very difficult unless we go back to the original source material. And I think, you know, being at Harvard and looking both at the, the business school and the Harvard University library, really the only way we could we could uncover um, some of these interesting histories which run counter to our assumptions about the field of management and economics today. This is supremely interesting and this let me think about another chapter which is devoted to, um, to Maslow and uh, in, actually in one conversation with Todd we also mentioned the case of uh, uh, divine uh, work, supposed work on um, change management. And both Maslow, Maslow's pyramid and uh, divine uh, unfreezing and refreezing model of change management are so frequently used almost daily in our business schools. Um, and it is surprising to, dis to discover through your book that there is such a big inaccuracy in, in uh, the way we describe the work of Maslow and their interest of Maslow and, and Divine on those two topics. Well, you see, it's a really, I just want to jump in there before because I know Todd's got a lot more to say on that. But it's really interesting that you talk about Levine um, because most of our English listeners or people who are listening with English as a first language won't recognize that name because what they know is Lewin. 
And I think it's a really great example about how many of these theorists are anglicized. Um, and so you know, we're, we're talking about Lewin's theory of change, but the correct way of pronouncing the name is, is Levine or Levine. Uh, and I think you know, that's an interesting jumping off point to how, uh, you know, how we twist the, these theorists and we make their ideas more simplified and more, more easy for, for, for Anglo um, business schools. Uh, Anglo-American business schools to digest, but Todd, I'm sure we'll talk more about not only how the names are changed, but how some of the theories get simplified and twisted as well. Yeah, so in the case of Lewin, you mentioned the famous three-step theory of change, um, unfreezing, changing, refreezing. Now that is, is regarded as the foundation of change management. Um, and everyone refers to Lewin as being the creator of that. And what we found reading back through what he wrote was that he really only ever dedicated 130 words to that idea. Um, it certainly did not present it as, as a complete model, certainly not written about in the context of organizational change. And so our, our efforts there have been to, to see how that model was created, who created, and also to think about why it was created. Um, and, and the case with Maslow, you mentioned his famous pyramid. We think it's the most famous symbol in management studies. Mm. Um, and our research there suggests that Maslow never created the pyramid. He certainly came up with the hierarchy of needs, but he never put it in that you know, instantly recognizable form of a pyramid. So there, there's another question there about who created it and why they created that. And, and what we see running through those examples as well as some others, is that um, that kind of misrepresentation serves a purpose for the field of management. Um, the management to be seen as, as you know, an established field of study with some status, it needs a history. Um, it also needs a history to be consistent with um, the values of those who dominate the present. And so what we see is this kind of um, this misrepresentation, simplification of these figures who provide um, the field with legitimacy. We, we have a history. We have famous scholars like Maslow um, and Lewin. Um, but it is to paint them uh, very much as simpletons, really, who, while they had uh, good ideas, they were not nearly as sophisticated as we are now. And so these, these textbooks are able to chart a progression from you know, the well-intentioned but simplistic ideas of the past um, to the much more uh, sophisticated ideas of the present. And, you know, we think that's unfortunate. Um, we're, we're, if we encouraged our students to actually go back and read Lewin in the original or Maslow in the original, uh, we would see that um, their ideas uh, are so much more complex than students are led to believe, but also have great relevance um, for thinking about organisations today. Mm. And again, I think that that's a theme that, that, that runs through the book, and it comes back to your earlier questions, Andrea, about um, you know, why do we teach um, such a, a small, narrow, simple history to our students? Partly it's because um, management and economics, they're fields that don't really rate history. Uh, they, they claim to be much more interested in the present. So you know, we do, if you look at most textbooks, history is kind of tucked away into a small section you process and you get through it quickly um, to move on to the more intelligent, the more current ideas of today. And I think what we've 
really tried to do in the book is, is turn that on its head. Um, we argue that you know some of these these, these characters who are seen as, as simpletons, um, whether it's Max Weber or, or Frederick Taylor or, or, or Maslow or, or, or Lewin, they're actually far more complex than the many of the the management books that are coming out today. You know, these are these are deep thinkers who who had much more complex motivations than what we understand. And um, so we we're arguing as well at the end of the book for for us to spend more time on history, not less. Actually, have a broader view and, and to appreciate that, you know, in, in, in Harvard Business School in the 1920s, there were some serious debates about what it is that we should be doing. Um, you know, while, whereas our textbooks today talk about how, you know, we've only just realized how important sustainability is um, in the last 10 or 15 years. If you go back and look at Frederick Taylor's um, and the people around him, the, the creation of the idea of scientific management. It was developed with um, the end of conservation in mind. It was part of a movement, a conservation movement that happened um, at the beginning of the, 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 the 20th century in the United States. But it's very hard for people to think that if they think that we're so much smarter now than what people were in the past. So one of the things that we really do want to do is to open people up to the idea that, that history isn't just about the past. You know, By taking a broader view of history, we can actually think more creatively and more innovatively in the future. And yeah, I mean, just to finish on on Maslow's uh, pyramid, as Todd says, is the most ubiquitous symbol in management. You know, a lot of the research that we've done towards the book and actually subsequently tends to suggest that the pyramid was really an invention which was put together because it looked, you know, great on a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> uh, so whereas our students think that there's this science and this uh, this great research that went behind the creation of the pyramid. You know, the so-called scientist who developed it, he never presented it as a pyramid. But over time, as we kind of got uh, enamored with PowerPoint, we loved these symbols. So we're, we're kind of being, the field is being led the wrong way around. We're, we're presenting things because they're nice to present rather than because they're based on any real clear uh, thinking about the implications of these theories and, and how people might use them. But this example about uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor was particularly striking and interesting. Uh, you know, when I I meet somebody and they I say, okay, I'm a lecturer, and then they ask me, a lecturer in what? And then I say management and organization studies. Usually, people, in particular the most sophisticated, I don't know, people t teaching or studying philosophy or history or literature, their first reaction is negative. So then I had to spend 15, 20 minutes saying, no, but look, inside management studies full of history, philosophy as well, there is a lot of critical management studies contribution. And then I managed to uh, to mention a few books, a few examples to, to let them believe me that uh, business schools are not that horrible place that they might assume not knowing enough about it. Well, and your book clearly will be one of the books that I will mention in the future from today onwards to describe uh, the real nature of, of business schools when there are enough critical management scholars, colleagues to, to, to work there. Um, this was a very, very interesting conversation. Uh, I thank you very much for, for your time. And I um, suggest everybody to buy this beautiful book, which was published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press, A New History of Management by Stephen Cummings, Todd Pickman, John Hassard, and Mick Rawlinson. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for your time, Andrea. Appreciate it.